0: This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas, this is Gerald J. Russello on Russell Kirk Law and Tradition. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion.
1: So my talk today is going to be on the law and the Constitution. Uh, some of you may have uh, noticed a, a uh, judicial confirmation, something or other, going on in Washington over the last few weeks. And uh, you know I think that this is uh, provides a most recent, if not uh, perhaps the most disturbing example, of how important the control over the law, understood in a certain way, is in contemporary society. The particulars, perhaps, of this candidate uh, Maybe didn't even matter much. That some of you will remember the anti-Trump pick blast that a, a progressive group sent out with the name of the candidate blank. Just they knew that it was opposed, yes. they were opposed, whoever it might be. <laughs> and I think that the that that the that the opposition to this particular candidacy, as well as others, because what's at stake is not just a seat, but really a vision of what the law is and what the nation is. And this vision, as people in this room are well aware, is one where. Judges, and in particular a majority of five, justices of the Supreme Court, lead us all into a promised land of tolerance and equality. Kirk called a vision like this archonocracy, which is ruled by judges. And before the election, liberal elites were pretty open about this plan as the idea of a, the Supreme Court as an agent of social change. In 2016, before the election, a law professor named Mark Tushnet wrote a, a relatively infamous piece where he says that that liberals should abandon a defensive liberalism and just use the courts aggressively to enforce their view of social engineering. Conservatives, he analogized, to losers in a war, and they should be treated as such. They lost. The culture wars are over. We can now do what we want. And even earlier, in a book called Making Democracy Work, Justice Stephen Breyer wrote something similar. He characterized the acceptance of judicial supremacy as a habit that has developed in the American people, and it not only accepts that the Supreme Court must pass on the Constitution's meaning, but that its interpretation is superior to everybody else, the Congress, the President, or the people. This supremacy must be recognized, according to Breyer, because only the courts can protect the rights it has discovered for us. And left to the other branches, freedom would dissipate under majoritarian tyranny. And this position by Breyer, of course, echoes the 1992 case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, not the famous mystery of life passage, which we all could could talk about, but one that I find just as troubling, where it says that the court says that the belief in Americans as a people, quote, is not readily separable from their understanding of the court invested with the authority to decide their constitutional cases and speak before all others for their constitutional ideals. Justice Breyer, arcanocracy indeed. Uh, with the election, of course, that has all changed. Liberals are now calling for the expansion of the court, uh, other ways to dilute court's power, and uh, it's ironic what an election can do to principle. Now the call is to hold democracy sacred, right, protected by elites against populism. But these calls really for upending this judicial structure mask the real question, which is what the law is and what it's supposed to do. Those who hold views like Tushinitz haven't suddenly discovered states' rights, and they haven't discovered uh, originalism, and they haven't abandoned efforts to move the country in a particular direction through the courts. They still believe that the arc of history, as Dan said, bends towards justice, but that arc is bent by liberal justices, and it's (laughs) held there even if it's over our
2: throats.
1: (laughs) I think that Kirk and Arrestus Bronson can help us understand a different vision of law that touches on some of the themes that we spoke about earlier today. For those of you who don't know who Arrestus Bronson was, in short, he was American original. And Dan Mahoney, I think, uh, is the real expert here to talk about it. But just very briefly, as an example, Lord Acton considered, considered him as intellectually, no American I have met comes near him. And he was praised by, not only by Kirk, but by people like Arthur Schlesinger, who wrote his uh, an early book about him, actually. Kirk himself placed him in the first rank of American men of letters uh, and wrote about him as early as 1954. Bronson has a lot. He had a a very variegated and diverse history. He was born in 1803 or 4 in Vermont. He was a friend of Emerson. Wrote a devastating critique of socialism four years before Karl Marx wrote Capital. He, as Rusty said, wrote a very famous book in 1865 called The American Republic about the Civil War and and the American nation. And after many years wandering as a a preacher of various kinds, ended up becoming a Catholic and a friend to uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman. And he has a lot of importance for Kirk, both because I think Kirk, in a way, saw his life as, in some ways, a mirror of Bronson's. Bronson was a lifelong writer. He didn't really have a position. He was a lifelong editor, a late comer into religious faith, was also a conservative and also fully American. And I think he bridges the gap in many ways for Kirk from Burke and Tocqueville. He founds in Bronson a defender of the American polity in a way that uh, Kirk found uh, amenable. And I want to focus here today, for the next few minutes, on what Bronson calls the unwritten constitution. And Kirk follows him in that. And that is really how Kirk understands what the law is and what it's supposed to do. Before we get to that, I want to start briefly with another term that he uses to set the stage that Bronson uses called territorial democracy. It's not exactly the same thing as federalism, but I think serves uh, a similar purpose. Territory democracy states that political power must be centered on an actual geographic place, a territory within which the people participate in their own governance. It's not an abstract rule imposed on territories, no matter what their history, or no matter what their makeup is. The United States were separated as a people as the United States in a particular place with a particular history. And the United States as a nation shares its sovereignty in those particular spheres with the actual geographic states. The United States as a nation has no separate uh, existence apart from the states that constitute it. Robert Moffat of the Heritage Foundation has a a piece on this. And he writes, acting in convention, the sovereign people authorize a dual system of government, which assures national unity and yet secures their liberty and diversity, which as stated before was an important concept for Kirk. This division of the powers of government rendered possible and practicable by the original constitution is the American method. The American method demands no antagonism, no neutralizing of one social force by another, but avails itself of all the forces of society, organizes them dialectically, and thus protects with equal efficiency public authority and private rights. And Bronson calls this arrangement coordinated governments, each standing on the same level and deriving powers from the same sovereign authority. In their respective spheres, neither yields to the other. In relation to the matters within its jurisdiction, each government is independent and supreme in regard to the other and subject only to that convention." So I think this goes to what I think Jeff was saying before, which is, and Kirk takes a very strong lesson of this, that localism is built into the American system, and it's an important protection of both the diversity of the nation as well as individual rights that might be expressed differently in different parts of the nation. There is a purpose and reason for the general government, in some instances, to protect individual rights against the states, but at the same time, state independence serves as a bulwark against centralization. And even within the states, Bronson and Kirk note the importance of strong local governments. And this interlocked system of local governments, state governments, and the national government protects against what Bronson and Kirk call humanitarian democracy which maybe uh, Dan Mahoney will speak on a little bit later, which was the concentration of power in a centralized national government pushing a particular ideology, typically, according to Kirk, one of pure egalitarianism. This humanitarian democracy, quote, scorns all geographic lines, effaces all individualities, and professes to plant itself on humanity alone. It is acquired by the war, this is Bronson speaking about the Civil War, new strength, and it is not without menace to our future. It's a menace because it brooks no opposition to this organizing principle of equality and would destroy the actual rights developed in the nation's historic development and common understanding. And Kirk, reflecting on this principle, writes in the 50s that the humanitarian does not stop at erasing geographic boundaries of local rights. That was only the first stage. He then writes it will go on to attack the family and marriage and assail private property as unequal. So any inequality, wherever found, needs to be eliminated. And Kirk explains that Bronson distinguishes between the old American territorial democracy, founded upon local rights and common interests, and the pure democracy of Rousseau. This is characterized by, as I said, central administration in the name of an abstract people with little authority or freedom at the local level. And I think, Jeff, that's probably part of the reason why maybe people are less interested in running for Congress or interested in congressional democracy, even those state level, congressional level, local level powers are being absorbed. If the federal character, Kirk writes, if American government decays badly, then American democracy must also decline terribly until nothing remains of it but a name. And the new Democrats may be economic and social levelers, but they will give popular government short shrift. But Kirk thought that a written constitution, as strong as it was, was not enough to enforce this kind of territorial democratic structure. And how the constitution reconciles state with local authority and the individual rights with those of the community, he relies on another feature called the unwritten constitution. And this is part of the reason, I think, why Kirk would disagree with Jefferson so strongly on the elimination or a new constitutional convention every decade, because for Kirk, the written constitution is not the only thing there is. There's a whole complex underneath it that supports it. So having a revolution every generation just to rewrite a written constitution would not be of great benefit. The unwritten constitution includes all of the mores, customs, and ways of life that together form American political culture. As he explained, and this is Kirk, no matter how admirable a constitution may look upon paper, it will be ineffectual unless the unwritten constitution, the web of custom and convention, affirms an enduring moral order of obligation and personal responsibility. And this, uh, for those of you who remember, in the 70s and 80s, liberals of that era would waive the endless list of rights in the constitutions of various communist countries as proof that they were more advanced or that they had a better protections uh, of human rights than the West with its sort of archaic uh, constitution and, and older systems. and Kirk's response uh, then, and I think a conservative response now, is that you can write anything on a piece of paper. You really need to have the underlying customs to support it, and life on the ground in the Soviet Union was not one of rights. And Bruce Fronin, who's a very astute commentator of Bronson and Kirk, writes, Bronson recognized that the unwritten constitution of a people is primary in that it constitutes the common culture and the common law necessary to make a written constitution work, and because we must look to its customs and practices to understand the meaning of the written text. In other words, the unwritten constitution is not a living constitution, which I'll talk about in a second, in the sense that elites conform political practice to their own ideals, it's something different. But I do think that the threat that Kirk saw is what happens when the unwritten customs of a people change and the written constitution remains the same. It was important for citizens in this view to be mindful of recognizing and preserving those traditions uh, that supported local government, supported free society, And he noted that if not, you would get a thoroughly, quote, neutral state that in fact was not neutral at all uh, and would use its increasing powers to seek its own vision of the common good. So what are these? What are these customs? And you have to pick through, I think, a number of places where Kirk writes about customs. Always fearful, I think, of ideologically programs. He he tended not to define exactly what he meant by customs or practices of the people. He did think it it was very variable and could not be reduced to a set of programs. And particularly when he writes about the law, he did not write very often on the law in in contrast with other topics. Um, He was working on on, uh, a more thorough analysis of legal culture towards the end of his life. But there are bits and pieces throughout throughout his work, but you need to have these customs and practices, they are different from an administrative state, which as, as some folks early, early on, he gave some hints, could be the tradition of volunt- volunteerism, private associations, a rough and ready American tolerance, refracted through the particular circumstances that uh, occurred across the nation. And This is where I would cite, again, Kirk's experience as Justice of the Peace. He had, it had all the things really that Kirk would like about local government and local society. It had authority, custom, tradition, a local sense of justice. As he wrote, when deciding upon the validity of a title boundary, Kirk would did not, he said, resort to Locke or Rousseau. He went to the title roles. And then he looked to custom and tradition to decide. And that, I think, uh, is a very illustrative view of how he thought the law would work. It's really a mechanism for resolving disputes through compromise and through a common understanding, not an ideological weapon that is used to further some abstract goal. And without those attachments, without those local practices, self-government suffers. And as I mentioned, those are really only attributable partly to some level of abstraction or ideological program that, that can then be applied. I think in Kirk's view, as in Bronzes, we've become too Lockean. We understand ourselves as rights-bearing, autonomous individuals entering into this public square to which we give only our contingent assent, so long as they satisfy our needs. And it's unclear, I think, to Kirk whether a constitutional structure could survive on that basis, especially when our notion of rights keeps expanding. And when that happens, the only solution to prevent disorder is to let government be the continued and repeated arbiter of disputes, particularly the judges. And the law, therefore, just becomes an instrument in a power struggle as groups compete for recognition of their rights against others. And that in and of itself is a form of disorder. I think the more you have um, affirmative government involvement. Bronson and Kirk reject this formulation of how uh, the constitutional structure should work. Peter Lawler, who's another writer on Bronson, agrees that for Bronson, as for Kirk, there are natural rights. But for Kirk, they're not based on a Lockean principle. The reason that one man, this is quoting Lawler, can have in himself no right to govern another is that a man is never absolutely his or her own, but always and everywhere belonging to the creator. That is, we can reasonably affirm that our natural law originates with a creator and that we are dependent on him. And it is this affirmation, which is the antithesis of a Lockean self-ownership, that supports a proper foundation of human equality, or the doctrine that we have equal rights at all. All governments that truly protect individual rights depend on the assumption that man is not God, A political society in this view is not a contract at all, but really is a kind of Burkean covenant among the generations. And that covenant has obligations as well as rights. But Kirk, in his writings on the constitution, saw a lot of threats to that unwritten constitution. One was by nature of the geography. He thought that the size of the nation created problems of scale and burdened the central government with far too many responsibilities beyond its own narrowed obligations under the constitution. He also thought there was a problem with developing any kind of class of leaders. As Jeff, I think, mentioned, Kirk did favor the separation of society into classes. He thought that was an important part of any humane or civilized society. But the nation being too broad, too decentralized, didn't really have anything, I think he was thinking of the United Kingdom, of a class of leaders that were commonly educated and had a common outlook. For Kirk, perhaps that was a good thing since it would have prevented liberal elites, at least, from opposing their views on the nation. I think, obviously, times have changed. I think Kirk would look at it slightly differently today. And later in his life, he, did, he critiqued what, what he called the new elite, which he described as made up of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, journalists, and professional politicians. This class lacked the foundations of place and sentiment and imagination that Kirk thought was important for representative government. As a result, they, they were themselves at the mercy of the forces they attempted to control. He called themselves, they were at once jailers and jailed. They were tried to control the mass democracy or ideological program that they let loose but found themselves captured by it. That hasn't stopped some of them from saying that their own progressive constitution is itself unwritten. Akhil Amar, who's a Yale law professor, wrote a, even wrote a book with that title, The Unwritten Constitution. But that's a world away from what Bronson and Kirk meant. For Amar and those who agreed with him, like Tushnet, Law is a source of rights defined by experts and then circulated through the population through judicial decision. Bronson and would put it another way. They put it in something like that law is not the source of higher order goods, but rather it's a means of pursuing those goods. The goods pre-exist the legal enunciation of them. Law is normative in the sense that it reflects and sometimes expresses social norms. Rooted in concrete social experience, laws emerge out of existing social arrangements and practices. Particular and imperfect, these laws reflect the integration of historical expectations rooted in circumstance and practice with permanent principles stemming from the order of reality or natural law. It's best understood as historically grounded normative reasoning. And I think that reference to natural law is an important one. Kirk did believe that the uh, Constitution and the civil order was grounded in certain truths about human nature. However, he was very reluctant to overcome the constitutional order in the enunciation of those principles and I think he had just as much Difficulty with certain conservative reflections of that as liberal ones He did not like activism on either side uh, because he felt that it was easier to destroy than to create and to announce a principle in the abstract overcoming local rights and community traditions was dangerous no matter what the principle and in that too he follows Bronson who in a famous controversy in the 1850s criticized the assertion of a, quote, higher law above the Constitution over the slavery question. For Amar, the unwritten Constitution is simply a tool, and in fact a weapon. It's used to change the written Constitution according to the values and desires of powerful contemporary elites in charge of propagating meanings and even creating civil religious doctrine. And that's the difference between progressive unwritten constitution and a conservative one. A progressive one looks forward, the conservative one looks backward. (coughs) And that's really the only way to have, I think, in Kirk's view, a legal structure at all. It's in part reliant on our common understandings of what we're talking about and not merely reliant or expecting the next wave of dogmata, as Roger said. And Amar tries to develop something called a symbolic constitution, which in some sense is a Kirkian way, a set of symbols conservatives are familiar with that unite and organize our thinking about our society. But again, the the symbolic constitution of an amar is merely to point out who's on the wrong side of history. It's not actually a way to enter into a common life. And you can see this very clearly in how Kirk understands rights compared to others, especially in the liberal judiciary. In this book, Rights and Duties, which compiles Kirk's views on the law, Russell Hittinger compares how Kirk sees rights with Justice Brennan. Kirk and Brennan both shared a belief that the Constitution reflected complex interplay between written and unwritten norms, including, I think it's fair to say, both believed in certain transcendental principles of rights. But Justice Brennan understands constitutional rights as weapons that individuals use against their community in order to assert themselves, and thought that the Constitution should be interpreted to guarantee individual rights as broadly as possible to emancipate people from societal control. And this is where I would return to the mystery passage, which is very much reflected in Justice Kennedy's view, that we have the right to create our own lives and that the government and our communities need to abide by that and in fact encourage us or assist us in doing that. Kirk did not see that at all. In some sense, I think he didn't even see rights as easily identifiable separate from a historical community and separate from how they were actually reflected. So one may have the right to free speech But that is not an abstraction. It really does depend on the consequences and communities in which you live. In fact, he said that the assertion of those rights should be done only as a last resort, ordinarily. That ordinarily is typical Kirkian prudence, right? (laughs) Everything in moderation, including moderation. (laughs) And and why did he say that? Well, he wanted to avoid the situation we have now, where everyone has a right to everything, and everything goes into the courthouse to have someone decide. Bronson, too, saw individualism as a threat to American self-government government becomes an agent of individuals rather than a search for the common good, which both Bronson and Kirk believed in. And the way the Constitution, at least in this view, works is that it protects individual rights by allowing a space for community and a space for standards of differing, even constitutional or political morality. And to this, I think he would have a perhaps different view of a pure originalist, although there are more people more expert on this panel than I, about how to interpret the Constitution. I think he might be more in line with how Adam White a few years ago described Justice Alito's jurisprudence, which is attuned to the space that the Constitution preserves for local communities to defend the vulnerable and protect traditional values. So not simply a legalistic originalism, but one that actually defers to historical practice in order to decide new questions of law. And I'll just conclude briefly. uh, Lawler says, the freedom of the person that territorial democracy supports accounts for the richness of personhood as seen in man's spiritual, political, familial, and economic relations, which must be protected and supported by the state. A good polity will connect and reconcile the free and relational person with self-government, and thereby engender devotion to the common good.
0: Thank you. James? Thank you for that presentation. You know, I think Kirk's views of radical individualism are what are, in many ways, most relevant today and to our society. He said that the myth of individual free will is a free will stripped of divine guidance and of grace. And I think today what we're seeing in this kind of alienation, cultural alienation, cultural malaise speaks very much to I think what Kirk was worried about in his day has really devolved into what we have today where we are expected to kind of go on a vision quest of personal identity <laughs> and come out of the other side who knows where, totally disconnected from any anything else in society. I wonder you know, what can be done about that. I feel like we're so far more down the road from what Kurt observed in his time.
1: I think if I were my typical pessimistic conservative, I would agree with you. I think we are far down the road. Uh, you know, One does not have to look far either in the courtroom or public opinion, I think you're right, James, that the baseline understanding is that each person has an infinitely malleable personality that needs to be encouraged, supported, protected against any other social, civil, legal impediment to whatever your self-expression might be. And I think Kirk did see that very early on, and he did see that both in, I think this drives part of his critique of capitalism, where he thought that they were also encouraging sort of the destruction of communities and traditions that would tend to block that kind of individualism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, that, as I've thought about this topic quite a bit, I think that the, he has, I would say, a somewhat internal looking, where he says, bright in the corner where you are, which is a, a phrase that uh, Bill Kaufman, as a writer up in New York, uses a lot, that you have to start with where you are and not think of abstract programs. I think he also was firmly convinced that because individuality is not purely abstract, that we can't avoid being relational, even if we deny it, that that natural propensity to form communities and form habits and traditions will remain wherever you are and will reassert itself.
3: Yeah, I, I think all of us who um, write on Orestes-Brownson today, as I do in my new book, are very indebted to Kirk. He really was a pioneer, as you point out, in the 50s. and recovering covering Orestes Brownson's wisdom, as was Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., <laughs> <right>. briefly, but <laughs> very uh, <laughs> briefly. Very briefly. And he wasn't really <laughs> interested in the good Brownson. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I think it's important to note, Brownson himself was a thoroughgoing humanitarian in the 1830s. He was a pantheist. He was a paramarxist. He was sort of a class struggle guy avant la lettre. He believed in the religion of humanity. He read Compton Saint-Simon. So his conversion to Roman Catholicism in 1844 was based on a a self-conscious repudiation of the religion of humanity, which I think makes him very relevant. One other comment about Brownson, and this might be a link to some of the things we were talking about earlier with Kirk and Burke. Brownson, I think, as your remarks suggested, did believe in the possibility of a constitutional founding. Demester, who he takes on in the American Republic, said there could be no foundings. You know, politics is just about political sociology, whatever your people are, your custom. No, Brownson believed there's a America had a constitutional founding. It was noble, it was worthy of preservation. But as you as you nicely point out, it presupposed an unwritten constitution. Common law, the Christian inheritance, territorial democracy. And I think that recognition that I think it's Roger Scruton nicely puts it, we the people presupposes a pre-existing we. And so Brownson didn't have the traditionalist objection to the idea that the United States in some se- sense became a constitutional people in 1787. But they didn't become a people in 1787. And I think that balance is very truthful and very good for conservatism. It's a way of acknowledging... The achievement of Publius, the achievement of um, of the Federalist Papers and our Constitutional Founders well, recognizing. You find some of this in Federalists too where Jay and talks about people. all the great presuppositions yeah. of the Constitution like we're a Christian people. You
1: yeah, no, that, know, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, and Kirk does attribute a lot to the British common law system as a, con- a, continu- a continuation. He notes that all of the Founders and all the leading lawyers in the colonial era, Red Blackstone and the commentaries and the common law of England was imported almost wholesale into America af- even after the revolution. And he does have good things to say about the new political science of, the, of some of the innovations, for lack of a better word, in the Federalists. But he, you're right, he just says that none of that works unless you have a pre-existing notion of what the common law is, of what we were protecting, and what, what was new distinguished from what was old. So I think, I think he does nicely balance the both.
4: And, by the way, what's the title of your book?
3: The Idol of Our Age. Uh, published by? <laughs> a counter Right. <laughs> the estimable <laughs> <laughs> Roger Kimball publisher. Ah, ah, <laughs> uh, how how we do we forget?
2: <laughs> uh, thank you, Roger. Another fascinating paper. And uh, the question of the unwritten Constitution does pose problems for originalism, a strict originalism. They, they are, the way Alito might solve it, as you suggest, is uh, is a deference to, to local custom and moray. The way a strict uh, originalist gets to the same place is by acknowledging a careful delimitation of federal jurisdiction as to those questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what the Constitution does is it protects that very life. The life was intended to continue in the 13 colonies and in the, in the early states, et cetera, et cetera. But he does it not through easy, formal strictures. It does it through the structural division of power, right? So what the originalist insists on is that the way the founders divided power against itself was what's important about the Constitution. So it's neutralizing federal power as to those local mores and traditions so that they don't become dangerous to those positions. So that, I think the strict originalists gets to the same place. What are those structural separation of powers, which uh, separates power horizontally and then federalism, I like to think of it as vertically. That dead letter is enumerated powers. We need to get back to the enumerated powers. That's the next great project for originalism, I think. The case of controversy. Why does the Supreme Court only take 100 cases when it used to take creeping toward 200 cases? It's because under the originalist influence, we limit the power of judges as to what they can do. They can't roam at large issuing decrees about the state of society. There has to be a controversy under the jurisdiction of the Constitution. And then the 10th Amendment, also a dead letter. So there's work to be done. But the strict originalist can get to the same place as Alito not by deference, but by delimitation of federal power. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I would add that using those tools, you can look to already existing common law remedies. So there's a, there was a recent case, uh, no, no, sorry, maybe eight, eight or ten years ago, involving the Westboro Church, which w- w- protested the funerals of U.S. soldiers and said very vile things in, in signs. And they were sued, and they claimed a First Amendment right to protest. And... Everybody agreed with the Westboro Church that there was a, a, they won, I believe they won that case, and Alito wrote a dissent. And he said, we already have common law torts for things like intentional infliction of emotional distress. Those should govern something like this. They're already pre-existing. There's a long and rich case law about how the, these kinds of intentional attacks to inflict emotional harm on people exist. We don't need to reach a constitutional question. And so we can we can come to a place where we defer to to norms and, to your point, can sort of restrict our own jurisdiction to even hear some of these cases. And, you know, just another point on on the the common law connection with the administrative state. The great advantage the common law has is that we all could read the cases. We can even read the statutes and the cases interpreting them, read judicial opinions, and we can can use that as a practice that's authoritative for future decisions. One of the difficulties of the administrative state is that it's almost always arbitrary. You're always pleading before an administrator or a bureaucrat who is a judge in his or her own cause, which again, is contrary to a a tried and true common law principle. And that is why I think progressives prefer the administrative state. It allows lots of discretion, unreviewable discretion largely at that, whereas the common law does provide a common basis that we all can decide what is reasonable, what is within the course of decisions, and what isn't.
4: Jeff. Just a comment and then a question for Gerald. We talked about problems of individualism and collectivism. Uh, Robert Nisbet argues that the choice is not between individualism and collectivism, it's between statism and groups. And that what's happened in America is this kind of vacating of group identity and group membership, group belonging. And that the kind of operative issue is this issue of authority, that the state ultimately wants to monopolize authority. And as it monopolizes authority, these groups start losing their functions. And when you get changes in functions, you get diminutions of their authority concomitantly to that, right? So it's this kind of pincher that takes place, right? I mean, they, they take over some of the functions of these groups, and that, of course, gives more and more authority to the central government. And it seems that, uh, this is my question to you, is in constitutional law, the court would have the opportunity to reinforce the authority of groups, and often fails to do that. So I'm thinking of a case, for example, like PGA Tour v. Martin. Right. I, which is, you know, on the one hand, you know, not that big of a deal. But on the other hand, it's a really interesting case that the court decides because here you have an organization, the PGA Tour of America, that has defined what competitive golf is and that has the authority to determine its own competitive enterprises. Right. And then you have Casey Martin who says, well, yeah, but I don't, I can't walk. I need to ride a cart. And my need to ride a cart should supersede the pga tour's authority to determine what competitive golf is and the court sides with martin essentially saying that the pga tour has no authority to define what competitive golf is all right that's defined by the ada that's not defined by by the pga tour so i mean what's the status of associative life you know we talk about tocqueville and so forth I mean, it's all about associative life but it seems to me that associative life has very little legal status, not only in, in, in law. I mean, Wendell Berry, of all people, recently wrote that churches have no authority to determine for themselves who can and cannot get married within their church. Uh, you know, I mean, like, churches don't have that authority anymore, I mean, right? I mean, because, because Berry argues that's purely a matter of individual self-determination. This is Wendell Berry. So anyway, so what's the kind of legal status? Is that a way that the court could kind of push back on some of this? Well,
1: I I think it can, but the challenge is it is one of those areas, as Ken was saying, that traditionally courts had stayed out of because it wasn't part of their jurisdiction. Groups should be able to define what it is they're about and have their own authority to either include people or exclude people. Churches are really the only associative entity that I think that has any... Residual authority at all. There were a couple of cases recently about selection of ministers and who could be a teacher that the court has sided with the churches. I'm not an expert in this, but traditionally, last time I looked at it, the the authority of legal status of those associations had very little authority in law. I think in state law, certainly in federal law and state law, it varied. But that was mostly because courts didn't think it was their business to police what, internally, organizations should do, in mean, absence something like discrimination. Mm-hmm.
2: But isn't that the engine? That's the bulldozer? Yeah. public accommodation doctrine. Right.
1: right. And so the states, for example, a state like New Jersey has a very aggressive public accommodation statute. And the bureaucrats, right, the administrators or plaintiffs, use it very aggressively to eliminate all kinds of distinctions. And I think that that's, the courts could push back on it. But I think that there is just a very strong driver in American life against anything that would question or judge me for whatever it is I want to do. And that is aided by courts at present. There are tools to reject that. You could come up with arguments as to why that doesn't make sense. But very few judges, I think, are are buying into those. Mm
3: -hmm.